You're listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tape. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. In this week's episode, I'll talk about, is it ever too cold to wear shorts and play golf? Oculus Quest 2. No consequences for murder? But first, my thoughts on this past weekend's PNC Golf Tournament in Orlando, Florida. Last December, I did an episode where I ranted about Tiger and the Charlie Woods coming out party event at the PNC. The world had not been introduced to the 11-year-old phenom as of yet, despite the fact that he had a lot of early wins in junior golf in Florida. I mean, the sports commentators couldn't rave anymore about the comparable mannerisms that Charlie and Tiger shared. So after all that raving, how did they do? How did they perform as a team? Well, they came in seventh place. They were 20 under par. Seventh place out of 20 teams. Now, most of us would look at that and say, here's Tiger, who, by the way, has made an incredible comeback, and an 11-year-old kid. How are they going to even do better than 20th place? Well, we all know Tiger. Anything less than first place, you would think, would be a disappointment. But that's not how he expressed himself last year. Last year, when he was interviewed, he couldn't say enough great things about how great it felt to play with Charlie and how well Charlie did. And last year, he really did well. He made some incredible drives, approach shots, putts. I mean, this kid, it was a great coming out for him. You could see that he was tournament ready. And the fact that JT and his dad, Mike, beat them, that just was a competition between these two families that seems to go on. I'm, I'm betting that they're playing ping pong at both of their houses in the offseason. Now fast forward a year. Tiger gets in a life-threatening car crash, leaving him with a possible amputation and months of painful therapy to get back just to walk again. I mean, just years earlier, he went through five back surgeries and a slew of other surgeries where he wasn't sure if he was going to walk again, never mind play golf. So in 2019, Tiger shocks the world and wins the 2019 Masters by one stroke. That was an incredible comeback story. So now it's 2021, and on December 8th, after the world only seeing Tiger a few times and maybe within a month before that hitting a few golf balls on the range, he announces he's going to play in the PNC event with Charlie just 10 days before the event. When that happened, the golf world blew up. It was the talk on almost all sports shows and just about every golf course worldwide. 10 months after his life-threatening accident, he's going to compete again. And when I heard that news, I immediately put my device on record just in case I was doing something and couldn't watch it live. But I did watch it live. You know, it's always funny to me the questions that some sports writers and announcers ask. 
It mostly reflects their inexperience in the sport that they're reporting on. I get it. They're just trying to elicit a response more than just a yes or a no. There are so many reporters looking for a gotcha question, they turn would-be interesting interviews into like a hostile witness position of one-word replies, yes, no, maybe. Or like in some other sports like football, the media just aggravates players until they go apeshit with a response. Every single week. All I'm saying is the camera shows. I'm just telling you right now what I do every single week. Every single week. I put my freaking heart and soul into this. I study my off. I don't go out there and laugh. It's not funny. It's not funny. Nothing's funny to me. I don't want to go out there and get embarrassed on Monday Night Football in front of everybody. That's why I'm asking you what. I'm telling you right now. We're not. We're talking. Deuce and I are talking. What was the context? I'm done. Sorry. Other than a few lifelong football, college, and professional coaches, Tiger is one of the most experienced interviewees. Early on, as he was amassing all of his trophies and majors, he was like arm's distance from the media. What did you miss the most? Miss the most? Yeah. I miss sitting here in front of you guys. (laughs) And talking. (laughs) Just hanging out here. Specifically, in regards to being uh, a Navy SEALer, was that something you were considering? I've already talked about everything. Time like this, sometimes you, 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 you risk losing families or you risk losing, let's say, in the sponsorship that accompanies the things. Do you ever reflect on and think, was it worth it? Uh, I think you're looking too deep into this. Tiger, you could be back to world number one on Sunday. Are you surprised, given where you were late last year, that it's come around so quickly? Up to no. Let's take to bring this up, but the, the uh, thing with Sergio a couple weeks ago, to a lot of people on the outside looking in, just it appeared so petty. Has there ever been any thought of just contacting him and just saying, hey, let's chill. We don't need to be going back and forth like this anymore. No. Randall Chambly suggested that you should go back to Butch. That's, that, that would be the way to best get to where you want to be. Do you take offense at a suggestion like that, or do you simply... Uh, chalk it up to media analysts just searching for a theory as to why you're not at the form that you want to be. Well, I, I can I can understand that everyone has an opinion and he's entitled to his, um, but he's no longer playing anymore, so so be it. Tiger, is it uh, as simple as health? Is it major championships? Is it victories? What's uh, what's on your plate for 2017? You know, one of my biggest goals I think is to try and get into the top 1,000 in the world rankings. 
<laughs> he seemed slightly defensive and saw the media as an enemy. But things changed over time, particularly with all of his operations and all of the things he was going through in his personal life. Yeah, so over time, I think he began to humanize the interaction with sports writers and talk as a parent as well as a superior athlete. So when constantly asked about what his chances were of winning uh, with young Charlie, he would just say, I, I just want to play with Charlie. I love being with him. I love seeing him excel. This is about the parent-child or family bonding during the event. And it's no event like it. But make no mistake about it. Tiger and now Charlie don't show up to a tournament as eye candy or ambassadorship. They leave that up to Lee Trevino and Gary Player. Team Woods came to play, and they came ready to unseed last year's championship team, the Thomases. And for me and everybody that I've spoken to about the event, what a freaking show of great golf. First Tiger, 10 months post-reconstructive leg surgery, and he's hitting bombs down the fairway. He's sticking approach shots, and he's making putts. The announcers kept showing his before and after swings, and, and they are so picky and so minuscule about the changes that the only thing they could find is once he takes the club back, as he's coming through the ball, his back foot doesn't come up as quickly. That's his right foot where he had the surgery. Everything else looked the same. His setup, his backswing, his approach to the ball, almost identical. So Tiger's comeback in a golf cart event, A+. And here's my assessment of Charlie. The kid's a phenom. Every drive carried over 200 yards plus carry down the fairway. Approach shots, more accurate than his dad's on a lot of holes. And putting lights out. Together, Tiger and Charlie birdie 11 consecutive holes on the second day on Sunday to try and get into the lead. 11 consecutive holes. That is a PGA record. They beat their good friends, the Thomases, and then challenged the Dailies for first place. First of all, congrats to the Dailies. John, and I guess he's now John II. These guys can play. And how about that 200-yard shot out of a fairway bunker by John II to like 10 feet? That reminds me of Tiger, and I think it was the Canadian Open, where he had a 200-yard shot out of a fairway bunker over the water to get to the back of the green. I mean, this shows that John II can play. The styles and the demeanor between the Woodses and the Dailies couldn't be any more far apart, except for one thing. Both John Daly and Tiger Woods were sons of non-professional golfers. I don't know if John Daly's father played. We know that uh, Tiger's dad, Earl Woods, played. He helped me, taught him how to play golf, but he wasn't a pro golfer. They weren't brought up, either of them, in country club environments. Neither were anointed into the golf world through like a sperm lottery. They both had approved themselves, and they both did it in different ways. One was a product of a mixed racial marriage, which 
35 years ago was still a thing. I think in certain parts of the world, it still is a thing, unfortunately. It's certainly not the Bobby Jones story. And the other in John, he had an absentee father that moved the family around the United States just looking for work. So they both, they both entered into the golf industry without having their parents as leaders in the industry. Now they're kids. That's a whole different story. John II is on the Arkansas Razorbacks golf team. So he is anointed into the golf world. And Charlie, well, you saw what he did this past weekend and what he did last year. I think he has a good future. And, you know, I don't care what announcers say about trying to predict what the future is. Charlie's 12. Charlie has a lot of life in front of him. He has to go through puberty. He has to go through all the trials and tribulations that that teenagers go through, that young adults go through. Now, certainly, he has the tutelage of his dad, and I think he's well set up. I don't think he's in need of a scholarship to go play golf at school. But still, he's the one. It's his journey. He's got to grow up, and he's got to put the time in. And that's what Tiger says it wonderfully when he says, you know, the way you get really good in golf is you have to dig balls out of the dirt. In other words, you've got to spend hours and hours and hours practicing at the range. That's where all the hard work is. And once you put in that work, when you go to play a tournament, that's just managing the ball because you should have up to that point figured out a way to control the ball to your best ability, know your shots, know your tendencies. And like Tiger tells Charlie, Whether you're around a million people, a thousand people, five people standing right behind you or to your side, whatever that shot is you're going to hit, it's the same shot as if nobody's there because the ball doesn't move. It's not baseball. That ball's sitting on the ground. That green or that target area that you have to hit, it's not moving. All you've got to do is manage yourself. And so I think Charlie has great tutelage in his father. But in terms of projecting his greatness in the sport, like the Zen masters say, we shall see. There's a little boy, on his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful, the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse, breaks his leg, and everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his leg's all messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So you get it. And getting back to John II, (laughs) I really think it's a failure on the part of a shrewd marketing team not to convince him to keep the name they gave him for the last several years, Little John. It was a nickname he was given because there was a time when obviously his dad is Big John Daly and he wasn't his father's height yet. So now he's Little John. It was cute, but that is a great marketing name. I mean, it could be exploited, I mean, (laughs) capitalized on in so many ways. All he had to do was weather the storm of cowardly bullies that try to knock him down by emphasizing the word little. I guess the moniker of little in a man's world can be demoralizing and emasculating, but I think it shows tremendous respect for his dad, Big John Daly. Big Big Bad John. 
for him to accept the name Little John, just showing deference to the one who brought him into the sport. I mean, Little John, wasn't that a companion to Robin Hood? And was second in charge of Robin's merry men. Yeah, he was a merry man. And maybe that's why he doesn't want to be Little John. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Yeah, so John II, swing away, man. I think you have a promising future. Just stay on the right path. Yeah, so back to my thoughts on Tiger and Charlie. I don't recall Charlie hitting a shot that would suggest he was just a 12-year-old kid on Christmas break. His swing was flawless. It was Tiger swing. His nerves were unflappable. The oddest thing to me wasn't his play and how great he was, although it was impressive. The oddest thing to me was the gallery calling out his name. Now, I get the teenage girls. That's just stardom and kid crushes. But adults? I mean, when's the last time you went to a sixth grade basketball game and adult strangers were calling out your kid's name? Maybe the coaches. Maybe the parents of his teammates. But perfect strangers yelling your kid's name? It's just weird to me. I mean, unless they had a bet riding on DraftKings. I enjoyed listening to some of the interviews of the other players and their kids. I mean, any time any of the past major champions were asked about winning, they always redirected the narrative to the fact that they got to play golf with their son or their father or family member. Winning wasn't the goal or the focus. And talk about major champions... How did the happiest golfer in the land, Matt Kuchar, get an invitation? I guess the Players' Tournament is a major. I got to see Matt Kuchar play in 1998. He's a college kid at the time. And it was at the U.S. Open at the Olympic Club outside of San Francisco. His dad, Peter, carried his bag. And he expressed exuberant celebrations whenever Matt chipped in for birdie or made an incredible putt. His dad was actually asked by the USGA officials to tone down his reactions. Hey, USGA, fuck you. I think Justin Leonard is the one who told the USGA, because he played with them the first two days. And I think Ernie Els played, played with him as well. I don't think Ernie said anything, but Justin Leonard, I think he said something to the USGA because... Peter, his dad, was just getting in Justin's head. I mean, and I saw it. I saw um, Matt chip in from the sand on a hole, and his dad's jumping up in the air and yelling and screaming, and the crowds were going nuts. I thought it was great. But I guess players, professional caddies, don't do that. You know, sometimes as a parent, it's hard to contain yourself when your children do something amazing. I reveled at the fact that my son, Matt, broke 36 on the front nine of a popular course in Los Angeles just last year. I mean, we as parents want to see our children excel at whatever they're interested in. Tiger has to be ecstatic about Charlie. 
I think he tempers his reaction in public, particularly when a reporter comes up and starts asking him questions. But inside, you know he's doing a happy dance. Is it ever too cold outside to wear shorts when you're playing golf? I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I gotta go away. Baby, it's cold outside. When the weather starts to change in the south, it's subtle. It's not like when I lived outside of Chicago. And I've told this story before. You have fairly good, we have great weather in the summertime and a really nice fall. And even most of the Halloweens, I lived there for 12 years, probably were there for 11 Halloweens. And most of them, our kids didn't need to wear jackets over their Halloween outfits when they went out to trick or treat. But on November 1st, it was like a hard cut. It got cold on November 1st for at least six months. And every once in a while, when you got into the late winter, early spring, there'd be a day in Chicago when it might go up to 50 or 60. And then it's like the entire population in Chicago comes out of hibernation for a day or so. People you haven't, guys are growing beards, right? And people you haven't seen in a long time, all of a sudden it's, hey, how you doing? And then the weather gets cold again. You don't see them for a month or so. And then as you get into May, the weather starts parting to much better uh, temperate weather. And uh, you start seeing everybody again, but you don't see people for months. In the South, it's a little different. When it comes to winter, every once in a while in late fall, you'll get some rain, but you'll get a cold day or two. And that's just a short signal. You cannot, don't put away your shorts and your short sleeve shirts because days later, it'll be in the 70s and 80s again. It confuses me because when it starts to get cold, I'll start to wear longer pants, long sleeve shirts. And then a day or so later, because I don't always follow the weather, because it's usually pretty nice down here, I'll go outside in long pants and a shirt, let's say in the morning. By noon, I wish I had shorts on and a short sleeve shirt because there could be like a 30 degree sway some days. Yeah, so for me, when it gets below 65, I wear some slacks and maybe a vest. When it gets below 60, I wear long sleeves with slacks and a vest and sometimes a sweater. So on this past Monday, I agreed to play the Osprey course in Kiowa Island. I think Kiowa has the finest golf courses in the Charleston area. And they're a little pricey. And so they're like major market pricing. But what's really cool is there has been this coupon book in Charleston, limited edition. I've talked about this in other podcasts, where if you get it, it gives you an opportunity to just pay for card fees. So a course that would typically cost $275 to $300 will cost only $50 to play. Well, that goes away next year. So a lot of people that have the coupon book in the last three weeks have been racing to the courses. Last week, the weather in Charleston hit the 80s. Understand, it is past the middle of December. 
and it's 80-something degrees, mostly in the 70s. It was absolutely perfect, and you shake your head every once in a while and saying, I can't believe I've lived in so many places where it would be 30 degrees. Now it's in the 70s. This is great. So four of us agree we're going to play the course on Monday. You know, we're coming off a great weekend. We all have the coupon book. We're going to burn some coupons. Monday morning arrives. It's 39 degrees with hopes of breaking 50. When the weather gets that low into the high 30s, low 40s, those are usually my scoring hopes for each nine holes. I was playing with characters I've spoken about in previous episodes. The Sconson Slammer, who holds a three handicap. Guns, the Scandinavian sharpshooter, holds a seven handicap. And Mike K., who, like me, do our best to use our strokes to win whatever match we're in. I mean, who in their right mind wants to play golf when it's 39 to 40 degrees? I learned a long time ago that regardless of the temperature, once you make a golf date, you keep it. Unless one of the guys is brave enough to text the group and say, hey, are we stupid? Let's cancel. And then I'm like the first guy to weigh in and say, agreed. But nobody texted Monday morning. And I got to be honest, playing golf in 40 degrees with a 20 mile an hour wind is not as enjoyable as 80 degrees sunny with no wind. Thanks, Captain Obvious. So to prepare for the match, I actually wore ski socks, two long sleeve shirts, a vest and a sweater over that, and a not so well hidden wool scarf. That scarf was the ultimate protector in the wind and the cold. When I was a kid, my mom used to dress me with something called a dickie. And for all generations after boomers, dickies were this fake turtleneck shirt that fit over your head and just covered your neck and your shoulders. It was like the winter's equivalent of a clip-on tie. I always hated the name Dickie. Someone once called me, hey, Ricky Dickie, once, and I never wore that thing again. And here I am criticizing John II of not wanting the nickname Little John. So that wintry woolen scarf while seemingly out of place for golf, it made the difference. I was never uncomfortable and my score reflected it. Guns and I won all the bets, except for one bet, a greenie that the slammer inched me out on. And greenies, like I know a lot of everybody that I play golf with likes to have as many opportunities to win money. So Guys I play with, they like junk, they like greenies, they like sand, you know, anything that could give you an opportunity to make more money or at least make back some of the money you're losing because you're losing the match. I happen just to like to play a match. I like to play either a skins game or I like to play match play or Nassau front back overall. I just want to play golf. I don't want to play bet on shots, but... (laughs) I think uh, I'm outnumbered. But you know it's a well-handicapped match. When you change partners every six holes and the first two matches end in a draw. So if you wanted not to lose money on Monday, you needed to partner with Guns or Ricky Dicky. Yeah, so back to my thoughts on cold weather. 
When I work the first tee in Charleston, I often see guys in shorts in 40 to 50 degree weather. And it's always the same response when I say something or their buddies say something. You know, it's not the same kind of cold of where I came from. Why does somebody from Boston, Bangor, Chicago, or Fargo think that wearing shorts when it's 48 degrees is just temperate weather? 48 degrees is 48 degrees, just like $5 is $5. Thank you, Mike and Slammer. What makes you more of a man because you're wearing short pants and short sleeve shirts in cold weather? I guess it's the same thing that makes guys paint their torsos and go shirtless at football games when it's snowing. Or that, that just might be the booze talking. So like I said, it's the same thing. Look, there are no awards given out for guys that can handle extreme cold weather by underdressing. I mean, could you imagine at the ESPYs if there's an award for the least dressed in a torrential ice storm? I mean, that is Viking kind of shit. That is Lagnar Lodbrook, the Norseman. But just as a point of reference, if you want to brave the cold in shorts during the coldest season like a Viking... Here are just a few things about Vikings. Their age expectancy was between 40 and 50 years old. They suffered early death from either alcoholism from drinking mead or syphilis from all the raping and pillaging they did in Europe. Yeah, and many of them wore shorts in the off-season. Oculus Quest 2 by Meta. Christmas present for your kids or your grandkids? Yeah, sure, you go ahead. Melt them with your scary laser. Be careful with that. It's extremely dangerous. I enjoy the conveniences that technology provides. Now, that being said, I'm not an early adopter. You ever notice that you have friends or family, maybe even yourself, that wait online For something that's about to come out, you're going to wait in front of a store when they open their doors. Or you get on a waiting list, which I guess is the same thing. Like, I'm going to age myself here, but you wanted to get the newest thing that hit the market at the time. Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Transformers, PlayStation, iPad, iPhone, Rubik's Cube, or like Electric Football. When I was a kid, my parents got me this electric football. It was this uh, small metal, um, it looked like a football field, maybe two and a half feet by one foot. And you get these players, these plastic or rubber players, and you set up an offense and your, your competitor sets up a defense like you're about to snap a football. But there is no snapping of a football. You put the football in either the quarterback's hand. It was this like little Velcro felt thing. Or you put it in a running back's hand. And then you turn the button on. And now the board starts vibrating. And what happens is the players start moving. And what you hope to happen is your blockers are pushing the defense out of the way. And your running back is going to go forward. And it's going to run for a touchdown. And the way you stop the play is 
as long as the defenseman touched your player with the ball, you had to stop it and set it up again, right? But what happens over time is these players start going around in circles, start going backwards. And it was just, it was like, but it was the only technology at the time. Fast forward. Now I've got my own kids and my son at the time must have turned six or seven. He already has whatever the newest technology is. Let's call it PlayStation, right? But I think it's a great, I go into one of these um, toy stores and they're selling electronic football. But with some nuances, they now have a field you could you could put like a stadium with this cardboard people that makes noise and stuff. So I'm like, oh, he's going to love this because I loved it. This will be great. So now it's Christmas Day, he opens it up and I'm like, it's electric football. And he's like, hey, dad, that's great. Yeah. And so I set it up and we're sitting there. We must have run two or three plays where like nothing happens or the players are going the wrong way. He's like, Dad, that's great. Thank you. So now I go downstairs and I come back maybe a half hour later. He's got PlayStation. I think he's playing Madden. He's throwing touchdowns. He's running the ball. He's playing defense. Electronic football made sense in like 1968. But in 2000, Man, that thing's an albatross. That thing makes absolutely no sense. It should go in the Smithsonian, not in your kid's Christmas list. All right, so I digress. So other technological improvements that everybody just wanted to get right away. PlayStation, iPad, iPhone, Rubik's Cube, AirPods, wireless headphones, Call of Duty, whatever that new thing was, your early adopter friend or you had it. Well, I wasn't that kid and my kids weren't those kids, but we know people who know people. I'd like to wait a few minutes to understand how that new thing is going to add value to my life. When I bought my first iPhone, it was a year or so after I got my first BlackBerry. (laughs) Here's a funny BlackBerry story. So I get my new BlackBerry at work and... I've never texted. I've never sent a note to somebody where they had it a second later. Emails were a little bit different. You'd send an email and then maybe a few minutes later, somebody would get it. They'd have to go through all these other emails, but instant reaction just wasn't a thing. So my buddy gets it. I get it the same day and I write to my buddy as soon as I get it and he turns his on. He's in the other room. I go, Mr. Watson, come in here. I want to see you. Those were the words that Alexander Graham Bell first used to test his first phone. And my buddy wrote me back, fuck you, I'm busy. I'm sure that's what Watson was thinking, but he just couldn't come up with the words at the time. So like I said, for me, I like technology that adds value to my life. Here are the few things that improved my life exponentially. Number one, cell phones. My first cell phone, it just, I had had a car phone before that. And it took my boss like an act of Congress to approve that because he was just thinking if he had a car phone, he could be calling his boss when he's in places he shouldn't be. But my first cell phone, I remember I was working up in Salt Lake City and I was doing like a boondoggle. So like half a work day, half a ski day. And I go up and I get on a chairlift and I pull out my cell phone and I make a call. 
And the first thing I said was, you're not going to believe where I'm calling from. I'm calling from a chairlift. I mean, imagine that today. It's like, yeah, so what? Secondly, GPS. I mean, holy shit. I was the most lost person when I'd ever get in a car, particularly at night in a new town. I mean, I had a tough time reading maps and then applying that to a dark area. I must have this self-diagnosed dyslexia. And when I'm positive, absolutely positive about a direction, it's usually the opposite. So Garmin at that point saved my life. It's great now that I have Waze and all these other Google Maps on my phone that I could just Bluetooth to my car and bam, it'll tell me where to turn and where to go. Smartphones. I mean, every time when I was a kid and I asked my parents a question growing up, they'd always tell me to look it up in a dictionary or Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, technology sometimes makes us so lazy that when we just don't feel like thumbing something, we just ask Siri or Alexa. But I love the fact there are just no wires for that. I mean, I remember when I got my first Sony Walkman, and this is the first time that you have your own personal, transportable, and private music. I mean, that was a game changer, but I still hated the wires. I hated wires that went from headphones down to this device. I mean, now fast forward 42 years later, we're streaming Spotify or whatever platform you use into earbuds through car stereo or through a Roku TV. I've become a streaming maniac You're probably streaming this podcast right now through one of your preferred streaming services. The technology of podcasting has made it low cost, moderate learning curve, and high satisfaction to share my life experiences and observations to 680 cities and 38 countries worldwide. Which leads me back to my topic of Oculus Quest 2, Augmented Reality. The next generation. So I was invited to this party the other night, surrounded mostly by millennials and Gen Zers in this healthcare arena. Now here, I'm clearly the oldest in the room, so mentioning my podcast at least got me a seat at the kids' table. Now they're not too interested in the five W's, like why, when, where, you know, all that shit. I was going to say how, that's not a W, is it? But they also didn't move away from me that quickly. Somehow we get on the topic of augmented reality. I love talking about technology, so we get into augmented reality. And this one guy, let's call him a millennial, you know, millennial Mark, he starts sharing his experiences with Meta's Oculus goggles. He says, once you put them over your eyes and connect your headphones or earbuds, you're now in a new reality. In college, my good buddy Josh, he's been on the podcast, and I experimented with AI by taking a funny little tab with a picture of Bugs Bunny that was the AI at the time, and it's all the AI could have handled. 
I mean, when statues start moving and laughing at you, it's time to wake up from your nightmare. And unfortunately, I had seven more hours of this augmented reality or artificial intelligence. It certainly wasn't my intelligence for taking the tabs. So with these Oculus Quest 2 goggles by Meta, commonly called Facebook or formerly called Facebook, you enter this new reality. And with these hand controllers, you can fight, shoot, or slash. Now, I'm certain there are countless things that you can augment. But this conversation was about sword fighting. So I've never put on these goggles before. So, and they don't have them there to demonstrate. So I just ask a few questions. I'm like, hey, is this like PlayStation or Xbox single shooter simulation? And this guy says, not even close. In the game with PlayStation or Xbox, you're looking at a TV screen and controlling your first person with your controller. Now, you could see the room around you, and you could see the screen, so it looks cool, but certainly it's augmented fake. And what I mean by that is you see and hear it at enough distance to know it's not real. You can't feel it. Now, augmented reality. What you see is the reality in a digital world. It's now your reality. You don't see or hear the room in your house. You see this augmented place. And when you look at your hands, you see your weapon. When you look up, down, side, any time you turn your head, you are seeing whatever the reality of this digital world is. And you feel like you're in that world. That's why when you, I guess when you set it up, you've got to kind of define your perimeter. You got to walk around and know where your furniture is. Otherwise, you're stubbing your toe when you're going to fight somebody. I mean, it would kind of be like if you were Inspector Clouseau and you walk into your house and all of a sudden you get attacked by Kato and you're just breaking things all over the place. That's what it would be like if you did not define the perimeter. So now you could see your weapon. You're looking down and in your hand, because you have these controllers in your hand, you're looking down, you see a hand with a weapon in it, right? When you slash your enemy, you feel the blade coursing into their body and you see the blood spew from their bodies. You watch them fall as if you've just slashed them. You become an augmented assassin. I hear that it's so real that when you take off your headset or goggles, you have to adjust back to our real reality. Imagine that. So in our culture, and I'm going to say the cult, the free world, in the culture in the United States, Europe, and free countries, we can create this augmented reality to kill enemies with no consequences. None. I mean, what are the long-term effects of augmented assassination? Do people get so desensitized, the effects of death, that when they take the headset off, they become a killer. They become an assassin. I mean, is this a gateway to real-life shootings and slashing? Or 
Does it start and end within the augmented reality of the game? Certainly, that's what all the gaming companies are protesting. And understand, Meta's Oculus is just a vessel to be able to play all of these games that these other gaming companies are creating. So what does it do to the human psyche? I have no idea. So I asked, isn't there a game where you give pleasure to another person in augmented reality? Well, trust me, at that point, just about every millennial and, and Gen Zer turned their heads to listen to this conversation. And I say, why do we develop games that have to kill each other? And knowing that there are severe consequences for doing that in real life. But there's no game to reward pleasuring another person. (laughs) I knew Tracy would appreciate this. She just laughed when I said it. So one guy chimes in and said, hey, this is what we've been doing for civilizations and centuries. War. Countries fight countries. Religions fight. People fight for a religion and kill other people. People kill for wealth and independence. So you're saying, and I said this to him, so you're saying we are genetically predisposed to kill or be killed. That's when another guy sitting next to me kind of leans over and says, are you sure there's not a game for giving pleasure to another person? He whispers to me so his wife couldn't hear. (laughs) So since the beginning of technology, You know, pornography has been at the forefront of moving pictures, VHR, DVD, streaming, internet. The porn industry is in lockstep with the NRA and assuring that they both enjoy the the future of technology. So before you spring for the Oculus Quest for your child, grandson, or yourself, know your kid, know yourself because you're going to be in for a wild ride. You've been listening to another episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from Charleston, South Carolina. And I hope everybody has a healthy and happy holiday. Merry Christmas, and I hope you and your loved ones get what you've been asking for. I'll be returning next year with even bigger and better stories. Talk to you soon.